Hello, I'm James Foey. Joining me is Kyle Willoughby. Back from the dead, baby. And this is Dragon's Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and stories. Today, we are talking about... The War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds is a sci-fi novel written by H.G. Wells in 1897. It is considered one of the first and greatest science fiction novels ever written. It's been adapted a multitude of times into many different forms, from film in 2005 and 1953, to a TV show that came out in 2019 this year on the BBC, and a legendary radio drama in 1938. War of the Worlds concerns the invasion of Earth by a technological superior force from Mars. Mankind is brought to its knees by the Martians and taken to the brink of collapse until the Martians are finally dispatched, but not by human forces. Actually, by microbes and bacteria. Mm. Yeah, so don't wash your hands, kids. It makes you stronger. James will be talking about... What are you talking about? It sounds depressing. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, it will be about the British Empire's colonization of Tasmania with a focus on the uh, period ending with the Black War in which they nearly wiped out the indigenous people of Tasmania and how, you know, well, the reason I'm picking that uh, for my segment is that the Black War and the Empire's treatment of Tasmanians was the inspiration for H.G. Wells writing The War of the Worlds. Yes, and I think we we mentioned it briefly in our Big Book of Sci-Fi episode. We talk a little bit about that British colonization was the influence and inspiration for H.G. Wells writing this book, but this will be much more in-depth, and I'm excited and sad to learn more about it, but it's good to know. Um, I'm going to be tackling a, uh, a also a very dark topic, Orson Welles. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Uh, and the creation and him uh, doing the legendary radio drama that uh, I think a lot of people know War of the Worlds from and the so-called panic that it caused and so on and so forth. But before we get into War of the Worlds, here's a word from our friends at The Once and Future Nerd. The Once and Future Nerd is a tale of knights and kings, orcs and elves, in which... Oh, you've heard that before, have you? Well, in this tale, three teenagers have been trapped, and together they must... Oh, you've heard that one as well? Fine. Here's what real people from your realm have to say about the Once and Future Nerd. All reviews are by real fans, but performed by actors. I call this one socially aware D&D. Necromancers pervert the most sacrosanct traditions. Not all necromancers! Oh, wait. Uh, yes, that one is definitionally true. It's been an awesome adventure with plenty of LGBT representation and badass female characters. Oh, wait. That wasn't very ladylike. Hark! Verily, I hereby decree that you all shall f*** yourselves. It's a show that happens to deeply understand the world in which it was created. Stories matter. People are the stories they tell. Power is who gets to tell the stories. Find us at onceandfuturenerd.com. So James, why don't you tell me more about the Black War? For those of you who, who can't remember or don't know, uh, Tasmania is an island to the south of Australia and is a part of Australia today. It's where the Tasmanian Devil's from. It is. I almost said that, and then I thought, well, <laughs> I don't know if that's the thing to lead in. But no, it's true. That's where he's from. The French first landed there in 1772, and that's the first time that Europeans met the indigenous peoples of Tasmania. Uh, several English explorers followed after them in the next few years, including uh, the famous James Cook, as well as the team of Matthew Flinders and George Bass. And uh, George Bass is the one 
for whom the Bass Strait is named, and that's the body of water between Australia and Tasmania. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the ocean through yeah. there. And the Bass Strait Islands are a very important location to start talking about because from 1798 onward, sealers, people who hunt seals, uh, worked on... I didn't know what it was either. (laughs) 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 Uh, What are they sealing? What are they... Yeah, what is The lives of seals. (laughs) Um, They were working on uh, the Tasmanian islands of the Bass Strait. And this is something that's going to come up um, throughout the segment. uh, And that's the male population of uh, people living on these islands. These sealers were entirely male. These are all British... Men And so when they traded with the natives, they would give the natives flour, tobacco, tea, and dogs. Apparently, that was like the big trading item was was giving them dogs for seal skins, which they're trying to get anyway, kangaroo skins, and women. The women were worked like slaves, and they were raped. They were being traded because they were to be used not only for sexual purposes, but also for labor. Um, and in some cases, the the conditions that these women were kept in and treated in were so bad that they would kill their own offspring rather oh than um, bearing the offspring of the, the, the these men that were treating them this way or having children that grew up in this environment. Yeah. So uh, that said... By 1821, there was a permanent community on these islands of multiracial people and a lot of white English men living with their black aborigine wives, raising their children and families. Uh, These communities continued on and continued to survive even after the Tasmanian people had been pushed entirely out of Tasmania. And that's important for us to come back to um, because that's part of why this wasn't a complete genocide, because there were survivors that mixed in and formed their own Aborigine communities so that there are still people who are descended um, from the Tasmanian Aborigines today, which is something for a long time the British said was impossible and couldn't have happened. There were 3,000 to 7,000 Aborigines living in Tasmania when they first came into contact with Europeans. Um, They had lived on Tasmania for about 30,000 years, And they had been separated from the mainland about 10,000 years ago when the the water actually went through the uh, strait. Now, the first actual settlement on Tasmania, not just in the islands where sealers were, was a penal settlement. And this happened during the Napoleonic Wars because the British were worried about the French getting a permanent base there. Mm. And so the way that they settled it was to have a penal colony full of convicts working the land. And now that they have more, a bigger settlement, they actually do have women living in Tasmania. The ratio is four white men to one white woman. Now, this penal colony was not very well run. There were frequent escapes, and this led to something called a bush ranger, which is an escaped convict just living off the land. Uh, they're important to note because they were terrible to the Aborigines in a way that actually disgusted the other settlers. The first conflicts occurred after this penal colony and these penal colonies were set up because uh, the native people didn't know that they were there. Um, And so the first big fight happens when there's a few hundred uh, of a tribe all gathered together to do something called a kangaroo run where they're pushing the kangaroos ahead of them and it's men, it's women, it's children, it's everybody there en masse to help this thing along. 
and they chase them right up to the penal colony, which they don't know is there. The penal colony sees a few hundred native people running up and just opens fire with gun and cannons on people that are not armed for combat. They're actually yeah. only armed for hunting kangaroos, which isn't even like regular weapons. This is this gets into a thing that we'll come upon later too. There's different accounts of this. At the time, they said we fired on them, we didn't kill anybody, we just hurt a few and scared them off. And there were like 600 of them. Years later, when historians would talk to different people that were there, both natives and people at the penal colony, both sides said when said when later interviewed, actually there weren't 600, there were like 300. They didn't start it. The uh, Aborigines didn't attack them at all, and they killed dozens of people with cannon fire and gunfire into a mass of, of basically unarmed people. This was not something that the government was proud of or was trying to condone, which is part of why you have that spin on it. Uh, we know that they didn't want people to treat Aborigines that way because uh, they reported very negatively on bushrangers killing and torturing Aborigines. There were reports in the paper back then that we have now that show oh, like the, the, there were these bush rangers that were killing and torturing Aborigines and the Aborigines killed them, good on them. You yeah. know, it, was, it wasn't reported from, a, oh, how they, dare they do that to these bush rangers. And we know in 1813 that the government was telling people, hey, you have to stop killing Aborigines and kidnapping their children. Now, that first, the first time that's noted is in 1813, but we know that by around 1816 to 1818, that had become a widespread thing because there's so many government notices saying, saying not to, to do it. St stop doing this. It's happening so much that they have to keep saying over and over again. Yes. Quit it. Widespread practice. And especially they would kill them and take their young girls. That leads to a story from 1817 where a missionary asked in town, uh, hey, why don't I ever see any native people in town? And he was told because we kill them wherever we find them. That said, so that's how contentious it had already gotten by that point, and obviously terrible things were being done by the colonists. But I will say, by 1820, some tribes, at least five actually, had reached a peaceful trading relationship with the settlers, actually much like the sealers of the Bass Strait Islands had. They said, the, the tribes would say, okay, you can use our land for farming, and you can have some of our women, but you have to give us food. And seasonally, they would come by with their women, and they would receive food. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, there's no part of the story which feels good. Nope, 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 nope. It's extra bad guys and bad guys. I mean, big gap, you know, virtue-wise. Yeah. But trading your women for food is still pretty evil. Yeah. Now, 1820 is a big turning point because around 1819 – uh, there was actually a parity in population. It was it was roughly, people estimated, 5,000 Aborigines on Tasmania, 5,000 colonists. Then they start having more and more people settle, starting in 1821. And once again, just checking in on the man-to-woman ratio for the white people, it was six men to one white woman in 1822. And the government starts saying, hey, we don't just want convicts here. If we're really going to settle this thing, we need free people to come here, and we'll entice them by saying, you can get free labor from the convicts. Oh, my God. It won't be too hard to settle this land. we got all these prisoners who have to work for free. So they began to arrive in great numbers in 1820. And between 1820 and 1830, they went from having... 1821 to 1830, it went from 7,000 colonists to 24,000. But the big number and the thing that really starts to change the relationship is it led to not just farming, but using the land for pastures. They had 200,000 sheep. 
Oh, wow. And that's what eliminates the hunting ground. So the Aborigines are doing things like chasing kangaroos, and all of a sudden you get to a fence and white people that will kill you if you step over it. In 1826, it became Van Diemen's Land for the Van Diemen's Land Company. And just so you know how many people were settling there, how big a deal this was relatively, this is a third of Australia's colonial population. Whoa. And at this point where they have the numbers and they have all this pasture land and you're getting into more disagreements about the use of it, that's when settlers start breaking that agreement. They say, actually, we're keeping your women and we're not giving you any food for the use of your land or these women. And that's when you start to have retaliatory killings on the part of the Tasmanians where they're coming in and killing these sheep and killing these isolated farmers on their pasture land. Now, the government, and we know this, I'm not saying this out of school, there are records of people's diaries. There are records from 30 years after these events happens where, happened where historians came and said, hey, what was the real story? Yeah. And we can compare that to what was said to the Van Diemen's Land Company, what was said to the lieutenant governor when he was doing interviews, and we can compare that to what people said in the paper at the time. And what we know from that was that people were lying to the government and to the company about how many Aborigines they killed. All these stories of, hey, we just fired at them and scared them off our land when actually they hunted them down and killed them man, woman, and children. We have stories about people who found wrote in their diary that like, hey, I was a part of this, you know, where... Somebody was on his land and he found some Aborigines just bathing in the water and he goes back and gets a bunch of other guys with guns and they shoot and kill everyone while they're still bathing in the water. And that's the kind of story that wasn't being reported in the paper, yeah. but that we have the records of people writing down, this happened, I yeah. heard so-and-so said that he did this. Now, if the Aborigines were to kill you, they would show up generally in daylight, in numbers, and they would murder you alone on your farm, right? Yeah. Um, every once in a while, in retaliation for this, what um, the colonists would do is they would get a bunch of people together, they would go out at night, and they would find a fire where Aborigines were sleeping around it, they would line up with guns in the trees, and they would shoot and kill everybody in big numbers. Now, just so you know, like, as far as the fighting goes, like, what the technological disparity is, because that's real important for inspiring War of the Worlds, the Aborigines have spears and they have rocks. We're not even talking about bow and arrow. There, there was a, a fight that I read about where, like, a dozen guys, you know, this is when it gets to, like, more hit-and-run tactics and they're openly, like, fighting, fighting. A dozen guys with guns are walking by a hill, and up on the hill are 30 Aborigines that start pelting them with rocks. The Aborigines manage to hit one guy in the head. Yeah. And that gets reported like so-and-so took a head injury out of this. They emptied their ammo into those people till they were out of it, then affixed bayonets, charged them down, and killed them. That's the fight. It's I'm throwing rocks, and you have okay. guns. So... This leads to what is called the Black War. In November 1826, the government says, okay, if you see Aborigines doing these hit-and-run tactics on your land, doing that kind of thing, killing your sheep, you can get a military detachment. These well, really are private soldiers for Van Diemen's Land Company that will accompany you to do retaliation. And the retaliation is supposed to be about just like a few Aborigines. If you see a few, but what it really was, was in this time period of a couple of years, hundreds of Aborigines were killed in mass attacks. Yeah. And this leads to martial law eventually being declared by the governor in November 1828. And this is, you can actually now, we're not saying they have to be doing anything. If they're on the settled lands of the colonies, you can kill or arrest them on site. And we're giving rewards for adults and a smaller reward for children. Oh my God. This leads 
culminates in what's called the Black Line. This is in 1830, where they got a few thousand men together, which was supposed to be every able-bodied man in the colonies, formed a line and moved down to force every um, Aborigine they could find onto the Tasman Peninsula. We're wiping them out of here. They caught one man and one boy. It was considered a massive failure. It took weeks and it cost the annual revenue of the colony. But the thing that it did was that it scared all of the indigenous population so much that they went deep into the bush and hid. It's not All of this conflict is not considered an official war by Australia today because it didn't involve the Australian army. It's a private okay. company yeah. and it's soldiers yeah. that work for them and settlers and convicts, you know, yeah. to carrying all this out. Um, but it is still called the Black War because it leads to a people being driven from their land and, and put in camps. Yeah. And that's my final bit of the segment, the aftermath, relocation and death. In 1835, hundreds of found survivors were relocated to Flinders Island. They got a pastor who wanted to save them. The government said, look, they're going to all die if they stay. We will kill them. So you should go and tell them their only way out is to go on to this island that we want to put them on. And then the pastor went and lied to them and said, yeah, you can visit home again someday and got people to go. Yeah. Another person who was helping convince them with the pastor was a woman named Truganini. Um, important to notice note her because she was considered, quote unquote, the last original full-blooded Tasmanian Aborigine. She died in 1876. And her life is worth noting because you get a lot of the story. If you want to know about this from a personal perspective, look up her life. National Geographic did a thing about her where she saw her whole family killed by colonists and then said, you know what? This is a better option than more people dying. She helped convince people to go. She regretted it for the rest of her life because in the homes that they put them in on this island, the houses they built for them and had them live there, people died of disease and starvation because they weren't fed. Um, and they died out. She, when she died in 1876, requested that she be cremated because she didn't want to be dug up and uh, experimented on and displayed. They oh, said no geez. to that request. They buried her, and two years later, they dug her out of the ground and put her on display. Oh, my God. That's how they were treating these people. So Truganini is a great person to look at if you're if you're curious about, you know, and you want that personal perspective. The only survivors were people who didn't believe the pastor of Truganini or those people who were saying, we got to get out of here this way. They're those that hid deep, deep, deep in the bush and those that were already you know, living on the Bass Strait Islands, who I mentioned before. That's why yeah. the Aborigine race of Tasmanians did not die out. But it's important to talk about them dying out because later, the justification that the British used years later looking at this as historians came back and conducted those interviews and said what really happened here and got horror stories. Yeah. The way they justified it, it was this Darwinian idea that that race was dying out anyway. Look how technologically backward they were. Their birth rates were going down anyway, which isn't true, but they said they were. And part of the reason that they said, th the reason they believed that was because, well, look, when we put them in these houses and had them living on their own, they just died out. Yeah. There was a report in the Times called The Decay of Race where they said, I visited one of these things. There were 14 people there in their 40s. Nobody had kids. And the only person who did, number 15, it was with a white man and they had a healthy baby. Like our race is rejuvenating theirs. Yeah, yeah. Of course, they're dying from disease and not being fed. Yeah. And when, you know, back on Tasmania, when, you know, they, their survival was based on hunting kangaroo and stuff, and you're moved to this island, and you're like, oh, just survive here now. It's like, what the hell, man? That's like, this isn't what we've been doing for all these years. This, you know, how? Yeah, yeah. 
So I know, I know, I know I've gone over, but my big point out of this segment and how it relates to H.G. Wells, it's, I, th I think it's pretty clear, but um, the justification that the British gave, or a lot of the British gave, was that um, the fact that we were able to do this to them, that we were so technologically superior, that they were in a position that this could happen, meant that it was bound to happen eventually anyway. It was just nature taking us its course for us to do this. Um, you know, enter the technologically superior Martians. Who come in and waylace to Britain. <laughs> that is a horrific background for this science fiction book, but I think it's really important that we learn about these things, you know. Damn, that's dark. Well, thanks, James, for You're welcome. <laughs> filling us all in on I, the Black War. I do think, and we'll talk about it at the end, but I do think it makes the the book resonate better. It totally does. You're you're completely right. And it makes you, it almost feels like H.G. Wells is like writing a revenge story or like a, a comeuppance sort of thing. Like, hey guys, this is, you know, this is what that idea could mean taken to this level. Yeah. There's a, there's a quote he has in the, early in the book where he says, don't judge the Martians too harshly for this. Yeah. Because after all. Yeah. Um, well, I am going to talk a little bit about radio. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Uh, and I want to. I'm going to talk specifically about Orson Welles and his uh, him adapting H.G. Uh, Wells's book into the radio drama that became extremely famous. So, radio waves were first discovered in the late 19th century by a German scientist, Heinrich Hertz. It was an Italian scientist in 1895, uh, 96, named Guglielmo Marconi who was able to create the first practical radio wave receiver and transmitter. And by 1900, radio wave receivers and transmitters were commercially viable. But it wouldn't be for another 20 years before radio broadcasting would start to include dramas. Plays and serialized stories started to hit radio in the 1920s and quickly gained popularity. And networks that still exist today got their start in radio, and radio dramas were some of the first programming available for the masses. Columbia Broadcasting Station, CBS, and national broadcasting company, NBC, started as radio broadcasters, sending out programming from New York to the rest of the country. By 1930, 40% of American households had a radio. By 1940, the number doubled to 83%. Uh, and the average household listened to four hours of radio a day. It's a lot. But what were they listening to, James? Uh, vaudeville. Music. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, early radio programming wasn't news. They didn't really report news on the radio. Uh, sometimes they would report election results and stuff, but it wasn't for reporting. That was still like the newspaper's jurisdiction. Uh, it was mostly live musical acts and comedies and dramas shortly followed, stuff like vaudeville. Uh, in the 1930s, radio dramas gained more and more popularity, and as New Deal public work programs linked up more houses with electricity, more and more people bought radios. It was a one-time investment that would provide free entertainment for years to come. So another New Deal public program would exercise influence over the story. The Federal Theater Project, 1935 to 1939, was a New Deal program to fund theater and other live artistic performances and entertainment programs in the United States during the Great Depression. And for those of you who don't know, the New Deal was something started by President FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, to try and get more people working. And it was a lot of public works things, like I mentioned before, hooking up electricity to houses in rural areas. And then this, like a government-funded uh, theater program. It was created as a relief measure to employ artists, writers, directors, and theater workers and allowed many Americans to see theater for the first time. 
1935, when this program was underway, a young man working uncredited in radio broadcasting as a writer and voice actor started acting, directing, and adapting plays for the Federal Theater Project, or the FTP. His name was Orson Welles. Wow. His first jobs, he wasn't credited with them? No. Because back, you know, it's it was kind of the Wild West was the early days of radio, so... Who got the credit for something? It wasn't something you really thought about. So he was r- helping to write these stories, and he was he was actually the voice of the shadow, um, but I he know, wasn't credited I, for any of that stuff. Well, because I knew he did the shadow, and the shadow was a big deal. Yeah. I thought he already had to be a name from that. I mean, he was a name in the area, like people knew oh, Orson Welles, like he's doing all this radio work, um, but he wasn't famous per se at that time. And people listening at home don't know who he is. Yeah, yeah, and that was part of the allure, specifically with the shadow. They wanted. They didn't want a name attached to it. It was just the shadow, you know, like this creepy uh, uh, superhero fighting crime. Now, Wells was already working in radio when he started writing, directing, acting, and adapting pieces for the FTP. In fact, Wells became known for being able to put on the best shows out of anyone in the Federal Theater Project. This was because he was oftentimes using his own money that he made working in radio to help fund them, bypassing the red tape and rules of the federally funded program. According to Wells, Roosevelt once said of him that, quote, I was the only operator in history who ever illegally siphoned money into a Washington project. Because <laughs> he was just using his own money to pay actors and, and tech people uh, instead of waiting for the fund money to come through. But he was still doing it under the Federal Theater Project. Wells wrote many adaptations. In fact, when he was at his fancy boarding school in Illinois, he had adapted Sherlock Holmes novels for radio, uh, for the local um, school radio that his fancy boarding school had. Um, And when he was with the FTP, he famously adapted Macbeth, doing an entirely African-American cast and setting the play in Haiti, which which then toured the country to a, a lot of successful reviews, including playing in the South. Really? Yeah. Orson Welles. It's pretty incredible. While he was working in theater, he continued his work in radio. And uh, during the Depression, when Americans were losing their jobs and they were having trouble finding work, Wells claimed he was overemployed. He apparently commuted between his radio gigs in Midtown to his FTP work in Harlem three to four times a day. He would go back and forth between Midtown and Harlem. Like, direct, I got to direct a play up here, but I got to run back here and read some lines for an hour, and then I'm going to come back and, like, work on this place more, and then I'm going to go back and do this uh, radio line again. Not to cast aspersions on a man who I, I love more and more. Does your research get to the point in his life where he's said to have been using amphetamines? No. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's when he, uh, he leaves for Hollywood, I think. But, yeah, I mean, maybe, I he was, right. maybe he was using amphetamines. He was young when he was doing this. He was 20 years old. So he still, he had that energy, right. you know. And later he would get it elsewhere. Yeah, and later he would supplement that energy. <laughs> um, while working at CBS, he adapted Hamlet for radio uh, to rave reviews. And in 1937, he was asked to adapt Les Mis into a series over seven weeks long for CBS. It was his first job both adapting and directing the Les Mis gig, and it was a huge success. And in this series, Wells invented the use of narration in radio dramas. First-person narration with scenes with other actors sprinkled in in between. So, like, that's what's telling the story. It's like this first-person narration, and then he'll encounter— Like, like you listen to The War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. Like, like, what happens at the end there? Yeah. Where he's just kind of talking about his wanderings, and then he meets the guy. 
that's crazy to think that's like that's almost 20 years into radio being popular and being used for drama, right? That's like yeah. around 1920, the first yeah. time they have plays and everything. Yeah. That someone would come in as a narrator. He yeah. thought of that. And uh, and he, he oftentimes was the narrator for his pieces. He would do all the narration work. Um, Wells was truly a pioneer. And in, I wrote 1837, but it's actually 1937. Uh, <laughs> he started his own theater company, the Mercury Theater. Uh, a year later, he was asked by CBS to bring his theater company into their station, and thus the Mercury Theater on Air was born, which is what, you know, if you listen to the Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, uh, it's always the Mercury Theater on Air presents. Now, the Mercury Theater on Air did radio drama adaptations of famous books to mostly good reviews. The first episode was an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Great idea. Great idea, right? And it was very successful. We have an episode on Treasure Island if people want to go back and check it out. I would love to hear somebody play Long John Silver on the radio. Just I, his speeches. I imagine it's Wells. Has to be. And, and it must be great. It's, it's probably so good. Other books he adapted were The Count of Monte Cristo, also a good idea, Dracula, Around the World in 80 Days, A Tale of Two Cities, and Heart of Darkness. But also the book that we are talking about today, of course, H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. The Mercury Theater on air had been plodding along since July of that year, and for the week of Halloween, the scary story of The War of the Worlds was selected for adaptation. Mercury Theater on air got mostly good reviews, and many critics found the adaptation of the classic novels refreshing and fun. Um, but like I said, for Halloween, Wells wanted to do something a little different. Uh, little did they know that the panic that this, quote, silly space book would cause. In a 1960 court deposition, Wells offered an explanation for his inspiration for War of the Worlds. Quote, I'd conceived the idea of doing a radio broadcast in such a manner that a crisis would actually seem to be happening, he said, and, quote, would be broadcast in such a dramatized form as to appear to be a real event taking place at that time rather than a mere radio play. And this is from a great article that a, a lot of my research came from called um, The Infamous War of the World's Radio Broadcast Was a Magnificent Fluke by A. Brad Schwartz that appeared in Smithsonian Magazine. Now, Wells was not sure what book to do. He just knew he wanted to do this fake news kind of ongoing story sort of thing. Uh, so he brought this idea to his producer and his co-director at the Mercury Theater. They talked about different sci-fi works and finally settled on The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, though according to John Hausman, who was the producer that he was talking to, there was a lot of doubt whether Orson Welles had ever actually read the book. <laughs> so they're just talking about different ideas, and he's like, oh, that's what this book is about? That sounds cool. I think we can make that work. Now, so after this decision was made, the book was passed on to Howard Koch, who was a new addition to the Mercury broadcast, and was hired to help adapt the scripts. Koch read the book and may have been the only member of the whole cast and crew of Mercury Theater to have read the book. Yikes. And immediately disliked it. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, he was like, he thought it was for kids. He thought it was dumb. He thought the idea of trying to make a breaking news story about alien invaders would come off as juvenile and extremely silly. But he went to work at it anyway. Um, oh, also, he had... Five days before it was supposed to air to adapt this. So Coke called Houseman, who was the producer, Can on October. Say, I'm sorry, real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We always talk with Marvel things, like the difference of having people who love it make it, the difference that can make for these nerdy properties. But this sounds like the difference can be the people being talented who are making it. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> even totally if they it. hate it. Like, who knows? If you really liked it, it probably would have been even better. Yeah. But it's funny to hear that. 
Well, Coke called Houseman, who was the producer, on October 25th, three days before War of the Worlds was supposed to air, and told him that it was a hopeless mess. He was like, we can't do this. It's bad. It sucks. It's bad source material. I can't make anything of it. Houseman told Coke that he would talk to Orson Welles and try to figure out a different book to adapt. Uh, But Welles, because he was a man who was overemployed, was also at the same time rehearsing this play for like 36 hours straight, and Houseman could not get in touch with him. So Houseman went back to Coke and straight up lied to him. He was like, yeah, Orson really wants to do the book, so just figure something out. (laughs) And Coke was like, okay, I guess I'll try and make it work. So he got back to work on the script. He worked through the night into the next day, and by the next evening, he had a script that he sent out to the actors. It was rehearsed and recorded by the full cast without Orson Welles, and the recording was sent to Welles with the intention of him to give it a listen and give feedback. Everyone involved with the rehearsal and recording were in agreement. This adaptation and idea was an awful disaster. (laughs) Unfortunately, the original recording of the rehearsal has not survived. I would love to hear it. But the script has, and Coke's script was divided directly in half, with the first half being the fake news bit, and the second half being the more classic radio drama style, Wanderings of a Lone Survivor, played by Wells. The previous Mercury Theater on Air work resembled more the second half of War of the World. So the stuff they'd done before was this first-person narration with dramatic scenes and other characters sprinkled in. But where that had worked really well with this upbeat style of an adventure story like Treasure Island or a detective story like Sherlock Holmes, the morose prose and loneliness of the second half of War of the Worlds felt really drab and dull and depressing in comparison you know, Long John Silver and, you know, this like being on a desert island and stuff. Wells gave the recording a listen and found it all of the above, everything I just said. He sent it back with a note saying to expand on the fake news bits and cut back on the droning and personal monologue at the end. And so Hausman and Coke got back to work with only one day left before this broadcast. (laughs) Hausman and Coke cut down the second half and expanded the first half of the script. Unlike in most radio dramas, the station break in War of the Worlds would come about two-thirds of the way through the, uh, the piece, as opposed to the halfway mark because they made the fake news portion longer. Um, Apparently, no one in the Mercury realized that listeners who tuned in late and missed the opening announcements would have to wait almost 40 minutes for a disclaimer explaining that the show is fiction. Radio audiences had come to expect the fictional programs would be interrupted on the half hour for station identification. You know, this is CBS, blah, blah, blah. Um, Breaking news, on the other hand, failed to follow those rules. So if there was breaking news coming in, it it would be dropped right into the middle of something. People who believe the broadcast to be real would be even more convinced when the station break failed to come at 8.30 p.m. The show started at 8, should have a break at 8.30. Never happened. Houseman and Coke also removed some dramatic scenes from the beginning fake news bit, scenes that would have made it obvious that this broadcast was a fake as opposed to a real news story. As the script went out for rehearsal shortly before recording, the actors also changed the script a lot. They made the dialogue much more naturalistic. One actor, uh, Frank Reddick, who played the reporter on the scene at the first alien crash site, listened to recordings of the Hindenburg disaster over and over again to try and match the tone and horror of the newscaster covering the destruction of the giant Zeppelin. Now, Ora Nichols, head of the sound effects department at the CBS affiliate in New York, devised chillingly effective noises, and the sound design in this is so good, for the Martian war machines. Wells would later send Nichols a handwritten note thanking her, quote, for the best job anybody could ever do for anybody. 
end quote. And it's true. The sound amazing is so good on that yeah. thing. Despite all this, actors and technicians working on it were all pretty sure that this radio drama would put its audiences to sleep. It's lousy, just lousy, one of the actors reportedly told a critic who was asking how Mercury's next project was going. What's, what's it going to be like Sunday? He's like, it's going to be bad. Wow. When Wells arrived at the studio hours before the scheduled broadcast, he looked at the script and lost his temper. He called his collaborators and fellow actors lazy, ignorant, incompetent, useless, other names of that sort. He had a tirade. Apparently, though, this was this was typical of an Orson Welles radio drama broadcast. <laughs> he would come in and he would delight in making his cast scramble as he revised and rewrote sections of a script a couple hours before the show was oh. supposed to air. And he would, uh, all the while complaining, you know, how he always had to clean up their messes. But Welles' additions did make the show better. Yikes. That's how to get away with it, folks. <laughs> Be a known genius. One of the things he did was drastically slow down the pace of reporting. He stretched out the interludes and made the news portion start in a much more sedate and tedious manner. He said that the only way the audience would buy it was if they gradually increased the pace instead of going from calm to frenzy like the script previously did, where it was just, oh, news broadcast, oh my gosh, aliens are attacking, where in, when Wells revised it, it was more of this slow burn, slow build to that point. He was right. Yeah, this made the whole thing feel way more believable and would help um, form the panic and outrage that would make Orson Welles famous and actually shoot his career off to new heights and send him to Hollywood. As for the famous panic that the broadcast caused, how intense and widespread it was is still up for debate. According to an episode of the NPR podcast Radio Lab, about 12 million people were listening when Welles' broadcast came on the air, and about one in every 12 thought it was true, and some percentage of that one million people ran out of their homes. That constitutes a major freakout, Radiolab says. However, Slate's Jefferson Pooley and Michael J. Sokolow push back majorly against that assumption. This is from the article, Orson Welles' infamous 1938 radio program did not touch off nationwide hysteria. Why does the legend persist? Quote, Far fewer people heard the broadcast and fewer still panicked than most people believe today. How do we know? The night the program aired, the C.E. Hooper Ratings Service telephoned 5,000 households for its national rating survey. To what program are you listening, the service asked respondents. Only 2% answered a radio play or the Orson Welles program or something similar, indicated CBS. None said a news broadcast, according to a summary published in Broadcasting. In other words, 98% of those surveyed were listening to something else or nothing at all. And on October 30th, 1938, this minuscule rating is not surprising. Wells' program was scheduled against one of the most popular national programs at the time, ventriloquist Edgar Bergen's Chase and Sanborn Hour, a comedy variety show. Where you listen to a ventriloquist yes. without being able to see his mouth. Yes, yes. And it was extremely popular. So no one was listening to War of the Worlds. <laughs> I haven't listened to it. How can I judge? <laughs> Wells himself has, al has also given different answers to whether or not he meant to cause a panic, sometimes saying outright no, and sometimes kind of hinting at it, like, oh, it was my intention all along. Because this panic and accusations from newspapers is what made him a household name and got him spirited off to Hollywood to make movies. So that is my little talk about the radio drama and Orson Welles. James... A lot of feelings on this book now, especially after the Black War. Like, I always knew it was, it was a deep, uh, you know, it was deeply rooted in colonialism, but hearing about the atrocities in detail. Yeah, yeah. 
makes it, it a lot, makes it a lot more weighty. It does, and it, well, it's the thing of um. I read that H.G. Uh, Wells' depiction of total war being waged by the Martians wasn't taken that seriously when he wrote it. People didn't find uh, that aspect of it um, as compelling. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't be till uh, until later that in Europe people started to see those kinds of attacks on infrastructure that the Martians yeah. were doing, that, yeah. that that became a, a part of war in Europe. Um, and yeah, civilians getting hurt is a part of it and actually targeting civilians as well. So that was hard for them to buy into, which is kind of crazy because, of course, the British had gone after just groups of civilians, civilians in Tasmania. What he was reporting the Martians doing was something people found like, oh, that's that's hard to believe. It's, it's so outrageous. It's hard to really yeah. buy into. And it's like, well, our own empire actually did this to people far away who yeah. couldn't fight back that well. All of colonial Europe did that to native peoples. You know, they massacred civilians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the thing, the thing that really stood out to me, I mean, there's, there's a, a few images that did, but one of them was the people throwing rocks at people with guns, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That and and the thing that like okay technically that is being able to fight back and like in War of the Worlds there is some ability to fight back, but yeah. the level of technological weaponry is so you know it's the the difference there is so vast and the idea that that justifies it that that's just the nature of things and it it makes me think Claire pointed out when we were talking about this out out you know before recording that that kind of justification is the kind of thing that Genghis Khan said yeah. You know, I'm I'm meant to do this because I'm able to do this. God wants me to do this, otherwise he wouldn't let me. Yeah, otherwise there would be someone to stop me, but there was no one. Yeah, and then uh, the idea of writing a book where it's like, okay, how would we feel if someone looked at us as not of their race? Yeah. How would we feel if that person was more powerful than us and yeah. we were treated like animals? Yeah. And, the, and there is some imagery of that, of being treated like animals, in, in um, even in the radio drama. Yeah, they're mentioned that they're used for food, that humans are, are going to be used for food. The radio drama, and this is a good point to make, had a very different goal than the book. And Claire pointed this out as well, that the radio drama, like they, the people who adapted it didn't like the book. And you can tell because so much of the meat of the book, which is, you know, in this black war is taken out of the radio drama. The radio mm. drama is about scaring people and making a fake a fake event, a fake news event. Uh, and it did really well at that. It worked really well. It did it super well. But it's not about colonialism and like thinking about, oh, hey, this is what we do to other people. What happens if it was done to us? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's some aspect of that that's intrinsically there. Yeah. But you're right. It's not it's not emphasized. But the, then I have it's I'm conflicted with that because it's like, okay, the point of this work of art is that idea, is compelling, is, is dressing it up in a way that is compelling and engaging that you're able to emotionally approach because it's a little removed from reality. Yeah. Where you don't want to hear someone just give a speech to you about the Black War, right? Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, Orson Welles coming in and doing those revisions, my favorite part of the broadcast is that early bit. And listening to it all these years later, I couldn't believe how well they did that slow, simmering buildup. It's so good. It's so good. Orson Welles, one of the things he did was he, he stretched out the sections where there's instruments playing. So you're listening to an orchestra, you know, play some music, and then the breaking news cuts in. Orson Welles is like, no, no, we're making those music sections longer. It was incredible. I was really genuinely impressed. It was a thing that I didn't have to try to enjoy this older 
yeah. this older piece of art when I listened to this radio drama. I was able, you know, like driving the car to be like, oh my goodness, we're just listening to music right now. Yeah. Oh my, like, yeah. like this is what it would be. And that buildup, it's so rewarding as, like you said, the guy starts to have that Hindenburg level he does, going up. Of, of like you know, the horror, you know, as people get attacked and stuff. Uh, yeah, it's really good. And you can get it pretty cheap uh, on Audible. I think you can probably find it for free online. Um, I, I know there's, there's sites that are trying to gather all of the Mercury Theater on air episodes and, you know, you can stream them for free there. The actors, it makes me think of Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi on the set of Star Wars, where it's like he thinks this is silly nonsense <laughs> that he <laughs> has to read that was written by George Lucas. But he does the best job. <laughs> yeah, he does. Because that is his job, because he's a professional. Yeah, yeah. Brings his A game. So, James, why are we doing War of the Worlds, and why are we even talking about silly old radio broadcasts and dramas? Well, it's funny. Talking to a lot of other people who do podcasts, especially drama podcasts, uh, there is a connection of influences that we saw, and that's that a lot of people count one of their biggest inspirations as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and not the book, not any movie or television adaptation, but the BBC uh, radio drama. Yeah, radio drama. Which um, the book is based on, right? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes, the book is just an adaptation of that original BBC radio drama. And so looking at a science fiction radio drama, it seemed like a great opportunity to do something early in radio that was science fiction, even if it wasn't comedy, and to get into the medium of radio yeah. and what that was and to be able to talk about its history from, um, you know, the early days in the United States to later on in England when the BBC was still making it a thing. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I, I didn't get into and I think we'll get into later in the next episode is that radio dramas in the United States died in 1960 almost completely. Like by 1960, they were gone, completely replaced by television. Because television shows up around 1950. Yeah. And so the, the death begins there. Yeah. And that is not the case in the rest of the world. Radio dramas still were hugely popular in England. And the BBC put on a bunch of really famous ones. There's a famous Lord of the Rings one that people cite as maybe the best adaptation of Lord of the Rings ever. There was also Neil Gaiman, famously, his book Neverwhere uh, was originally a BBC radio drama as well. It started as radio drama, became a book just like Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast, that means you're the kind of person that listens to podcasts. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe you would find this kind of thing interesting, especially, you know, nerdy science fiction stories and uh, fantasy stories that have been told with this medium. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm James Foey. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on social medias at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at klex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. You can find me, our host and producer, James at James Foey Jr. That's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And you can find Claire at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. Our host, Claire White. Yes. You can learn more about War of the Worlds on our Facebook page where we're going to post the articles and links to the articles that we used on our show and for our notes. Our producer for this episode is Claire White. That's right. Our logo was done by Patty Highland and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. 
Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.